Welcome to Breaking Doctrine, presented to you by the Combined Arms Doctrine Directorate at the Combined Arms Center at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. The views expressed here are those of the individual and do not represent the views of the Combined Arms Center, U.S. Army, or U.S. Government. Welcome to Breaking Doctrine, a U.S. Army Combined Arms Center podcast, the series that dials in on some of the basic tenets, principles, and overall ideas in Army Doctrine. Hello, I'm Lieutenant Colonel Nikki Dean, and today we're going to have the Army's longest-running chicken-and-egg discussion, which is intelligence, operations, and who drives who. And with me today are three individuals who are probably perfectly suited to have this doctrinal debate with. Uh, First of all, it's Major General Anthony Hale, Commanding General from the U.S. Army's Intelligence Center of Excellence out of Fort Huachuca. And we're also privileged to have with us our first brave warrant officer to come onto the podcast, CW5 Aaron Anderson, Chief Warrant Officer for the MI Corps. And of course, returning to the podcast is Mr. Rich Creed, Director of the Combined Arms Doctrine Directorate here at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Thanks, Nikki. Good Thank to be you. here. Good to be Thanks, here. Thanks, Nikki. Um, so, I think if you asked any Army leader, they're probably going to admit that one of the hardest things to do is to manage transitions. We have a number of listeners that have served in the Army that has been optimized for the global war on terror. And we're now serving through another transition, which is the modernization for multi-domain operations and armed conflict against potential peer threats. Back in 2017, CAC published our current edition of FM30, and Doctrine defined further that transition with unified land operations and LISCO, large-scale combat operations. And as the force had a common lexicon, we began thinking and talking about future operating environments and capabilities gaps and required resourcing. And the Intel Center, it was really no different in 2017. They also examined and refined their doctrine, their training, force structure, added new systems, technologies, everything to the Army's kit bag. And now we fast forward to 2021, and we've got a new draft of FM30, currently out for the force for review and comments, and the Intelligence Center is back doing what they do best like all the COEs, and they're aggressively pushing ahead on updating their doctrine, um, as well as continuing all the equipment and force modernizations efforts that started about five, six years ago. So I think it's really, really important for us to talk about how that transition went back in 2017 and discuss how we got here today. And I'd like to kind of set the stage for the listeners by addressing how the transition to LISCO and MDO impacted the intelligence community relative to operations. And I really want to begin with Mr. Creed because, sir, you were here back when CAD went live with LISCO in 2017 and FM30 was published. What did you see or what effects did that have on our centers of excellence and their modernization and their doctrine at the time? Thanks, uh, Nikki. So I think one thing that we want to consider is the purpose for which we published FM30 in 2017. We hadn't had an FM30 for about five years at that point. Um, at the time that we did away with it, there was an assessment that it was a redundant publication and we didn't need to have it. Um, the Army Chief of Staff at the time, General Milley, um, although the idea and the seeds were planted with General Odierno, asked what our doctrine was to deal with uh, big wars against big threats, or what we'd call large-scale combat operations against peer threats like a Russia or a China or in a certain context, maybe in Iran or North Korea. And we, quite frankly, didn't have any doctrine for that. And so it was actually an intelligence community uh, assessment of the operational environment. And, you know, this is prior to the 2017 or 2018 NDSS uh, that talked about the return of great power competition. 
Now, while that wasn't in the NDS within TRADOC uh, and the Intel community, we were looking at the world that way in, in the context of what was going on, uh, for example, in the South China Sea or the Korean Peninsula, um, and, and certainly um, with the Russian behavior in the Crimea and the Ukraine. And so the whole basis of why the Army changed its focus uh, in terms of readiness was based on an intelligence assessment to begin with. So I just wanted to, to set that up first. Um, so we published FM30, and it was, it was intended to drive a certain amount of cultural change. We'd been doing certain types of operations um, for about 20 years at various scales and scopes. But Afghanistan and Iraq obviously were the main uh, focus of what Army forces were focused on, and our doctrine and the rest of our DOTML PF construct kind of a, 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 it uh, adapted over time in that direction. It evolved, right? And so... Um, what it changed was that you had to start to deal with threats who could do things to us um, that we were accustomed to doing to other people, uh, essentially uncontested. And, and so that kind of starts that seeds towards thinking about a multi-domain view of the operational environment, right? So we're used to being uncontested in the air and the maritime domains. We'd be contested in cyberspace, but not during the execution of military operations. And we weren't really contested in space, although we had competition there. Um, and so those were all things that we were asked to address. Um, and when you, when you create something new like that, that's a radical repurposing of, of priorities for the Army, because it was the Army Chiefs of Staff's guidance that our readiness priority would be large-scale combat operations, uh, with Russia being the pacing threat and China being the long-term threat. Um, that had a, a real ripple effect on all the rest of the doctrinal publications that are arranged in a hierarchy from the Army doctrinal publications, 15 across the top, um, and then 50-odd field manuals in the middle and, and several hundred, 250 ATPs. Um, and obviously you can't change all of that at one time. It takes a long time. We're still changing uh, doctrine and updating it uh, even uh, three and a half years later. But we had to set some priorities, and so the priorities would have been the Army doctoral publications, those f first 15 across the top, and then some of the key FMs as well. Uh, General Walters at the time was, was the commandant down at the Intelligence Center, um, and because intelligence should drive operations, uh, he thought it very important that FM20 be the first one out of the hopper, uh, with ADP20 obviously being done uh, simultaneously. And so I think that's what the priorities were back then, and those are the reasons why. So, General Hale and, and Mr. Anderson, you guys were there, intelligence professionals watching this occur within your field. What did that transition look like for the intelligence community, and how was it handled? Uh, well, Nikki, I think, uh, first off, it's, it's great to be here uh, doing my second podcast. But for me, I've got to go back 33 years. So I first put on the uniform 33 years ago in 1988. So for my first decade in the Army, I was doing large-scale combat operations. And I'll go back to my time in the 24th ID uh, in 1993 to 95, where I had six NTC rotations in two years. And we were getting after then the Krasnovians fighting large-scale combat operations. So for, uh, you know, 31 years now as an MI officer, being a 35 Delta, uh, basically an all-source analyst. Uh, I've worked at the tactical to strategic level. 
Um, I've got seven years deployed in Iraq and Afghanistan, of course, prior to that, Bosnia and Kosovo. And I've served at Echelon, Battalion Brigade Command, but the Forcecom G2, JSOC J2, Resolute Support J2 in Afghanistan, and the SOCOM J2 as, as a combatant command um, before coming to ICO. And for senior leaders, I think that uh, it's not necessarily something new because we've lived through major changes in the Army before. Um, you know, when I got to the Intelligence Center of Excellence, the first thing I was told was, sir, this is the largest modernization of the Intel Corps in the equipment equipping side of the house than we've ever done in 40 years. And, and you know, I kind of scratched my head because that was before I came in the Army. But, you know, as we've looked and moved from COIN over the last two decades, and we started to move toward large-scale combat operations and multi-domain operations, I think initially for the Intel Corps, you know, looking at the 17 gaps that were identified, gap number one is deep sensing. And to get after large-scale combat operations, it's not looking through a soda straw, looking at an HVT like we've been doing for the last two decades with, uh, with MQ-9s uh, and, and Predators. It's how do you see a formidable threat coming at you in a combat formation uh, where they're going to go force on force, just like I was doing at NTC when I first came in the Army. Um, so, you know, Rich mentioned that uh, General Walters, then the CG at, uh, at Fort Huachuca and the Intel Center, wanted to get after FM-20 very quickly. And, and I think as we started the process of updating 2.0, and now, of course, we've got the new draft 3.0 out on the streets, which will in turn cause us to update 2.0 in some respects, you know, for the Intel Center and for the Intel warfighting function, it really started us the process of changing our training in the institutional arm. And when I got to Fort Huachuca, you know, I asked the question, uh, when's the last time we've changed some of the training for our MOSs? And I got the answer of, well, it's been a decade or two. And my question back was, how often do you update your iPhone? You update your iPhone every two to three years. Most folks aren't like me, and I don't update it, but every five years. But we need to update our training to ensure that our soldiers, and we train from private to colonel at Fort Huachuca, that our soldiers are current in the doctrine. Um, so we had to get after that. So I think, uh, you know, that process of learning from experience and knowledge going through um, big changes in the Army in my career. I think senior leaders is nothing new to us. Uh, but it does focus us in our warfighting function. And, you know, we've got to look at experience as we update our doctrine. And, and I'll pass it over to, uh, to my partner in crime here, Chief Anderson, because, you know, he, he's got three decades in uniform as well. He started off as an enlisted soldier, went to be an officer, and then resigned his commission and came into the uh, Intel Corps as a warrant officer. And now he's a CW5, so he's got great experience. Chief, over to you. A genuine unicorn. 
Yes, <laughs> he that's is. Right. That's right. Well, I appreciate that uh, intro, sir. And uh, ma'am, thank you very much. It's great to be here today. Uh, as General Hale mentioned, you know, this modernization is maybe one of the two big inflection points that I've seen throughout uh, the course of my career. So I'm a 350 Fox uh, by trade, all source intelligence technician, uh, pretty diverse background, served at our intelligence and security command, served at Forcecom within Forcecom formations, and then at TRADOC as well. So I'd set the table going back to maybe the mid-90s where we had a force that was very capable to fight the airland battle. Uh, we moved into a period after 9-11 uh, where we went uh, coin-centric, so that was pretty heavy for intel in terms of human intelligence and counterintelligence, doing a lot of personal, personality-based targeting. Uh, and then I found myself in 2014 actually sitting uh, in Afghanistan when the Russians went into Crimea. And I think it was at that point that the Army uh, looked at itself and realized we, we probably need to do another evaluation. Uh, and the Chief of Staff of the Army directed a study group over to Europe, uh, looked at you know, where we were and what we were doing, looked at what the enemy was doing, realized that, well, we've been fighting coin, they've been looking at us and identifying uh, our gaps, and so realized that we needed to change. Uh, moving up to 2015, uh, doing a joint force entry exercise with uh, 18th Airborne Corps as a senior analyst, that's when I first started to hear the terms large-scale combat operations and multi-domain operations. Moving to 2016, did two warfighters, and I think by 2016, we were already had an eye and were postured to looking to large-scale combat operations, multi-domain operations. Uh, and then in 2018, uh, I found myself as a platform instructor at the schoolhouse at Fort Huachuca. And some of the things I noticed there were that we had really taken a look at the, the program of instruction that we had, and we made a concerted effort to change the POI from COIN to LISCO. We started providing classes in Russian New Generation Warfare as they were the pacing threat at the time. Uh, we, we remodeled the MI pre-command course to have touch points that dealt with uh, where our current adversaries were at. Um, and then as part of the Warrant Officer Training Branch, uh, we really uh, took the exercise, the date compliant exercise that we had, uh, and we rescoped that and made sure uh, it was relevant uh, and compliant with large-scale combat operations. So I, I saw just a myriad of changes in a very short amount of time, 2017, 2018, 2019, as we turned towards LISCO. So, uh, so it's kind of funny, sir, that you brought up the whole, for you, this, this wasn't a significant change. This is something that harkened back to what you remember. And I think that was also another thing that I found when I started digging back through the intelligence doctrine is this, this really deep discussion and also a, a very a really good understanding of fighting for intelligence. And I have a deep appreciation for FM20, the one that came out of the 2018-2017 revision time period, especially Chapter 6, because it, I think it spoke to me like it spoke to a lot of our listeners that there is something valuable about operationalizing intelligence and ensuring that operations is constantly tied back to intelligence. Um, so I kind of wanted to ask you, all three of you, uh, that intelligence has this emphasis on fighting for intelligence. And it's got to be based on the assessments of the OE, both the current OE and the future OE. And how, how do we start talking about that more as a force? And what, what are we starting to see now 
with with MDO coming up online. So I, I can frame it broadly, and then maybe we get the specific piece of it. So it, it's uh, there's two pieces of it. You know, what kind of intelligence are you fighting to get? You know, in other words, what information is it that we need that's a little bit different, perhaps, in large-scale combat operations than counterinsurgency or, or uh, other types of uh, lesser contingencies? Um, and then there's a, a cultural aspect to it. Um, and I, this is not to disparage anybody by making a generalization that everybody's waiting around to be told, hey, where the high-value target is or anything like that. They were, we all fought for information on the ground in these other places, but it looks different. Um, when you're involved in a large-scale conventional fight um, where the, the operational environment is extremely lethal. And so what you're fighting for um, it, it may be very tactical or it may inform the operational level of, of events. But the systems em employed uh, both by us and against the threat need to be focused a, a, a little bit differently. Um, and so... And then the other part of the cultural aspect is educating ourselves, right? So you have to fight to educate yourself uh, about certain things uh, during professional military education. So there was a cultural norm in the old days, and I think you remember it, sir, because you're only commissioned a year ahead of me. Uh, I was expected as an armor officer because I, and infantry officers were as well. I can't speak to everybody else um, for personal experience. But uh, we were expected to memorize what the enemy weapon systems were and capabilities. And so that was one of the great things with Intel lieutenants is they had a longer OBC than everybody else because they had a lot more stuff to memorize. Um, but that continued through being a, a, a captain when uh, you were still sp uh, specifically focused on your branch and, and, and the, um, the knowledge, skills, and attributes for your specific branch up to company grade level. Um, so we didn't depend on the S2 to tell us what the range of an AT-5 was, right? You were expected to know what that was. And, and, and so the two, um, or the intelligence expert at whatever echelon you're at, were really focused on courses of action. And what is the enemy going to do? You were expected to already know what he could do in terms of capabilities, at least within your own warfighting function. And as you got more and more mature, if you were a scout platoon leader or a, a cavalry troop commander, um, you had to have a little bit broader appreciation for that because you lived right in that spot where you were fighting for information. That was one of General Donahoe's favorite, you know, talking points. The other piece is the roles of the echelons of a brigade in terms of fighting for information. And so we had moved as an army structurally away from uh, a division, for example, being accustomed to fighting a division cavalry squadron. Uh, or employ its aviation specifically for intel, intelligence purposes. Right, because we were in fixed areas of operation, operating on a radius in an area that we were familiar with in some cases, like in your case, sir, you might have been to the same spot multiple times on successive uh, overseas deployments, so that's very different. So there, there, there's a whole bunch of things across the Dotmill PF that there's implications from the fighting for intelligence in there. Some of it's cultural, some of it's doctoral, a lot of it's training. Some of it's going to be organization, but some of it's, I think, a mindset, too, which is will drive all the rest of those things. You know, Rich, uh, I had a flashback here of flashcards. Yes, sir. Back in 1990, when I went to, 1991, when I went to OBC, you know, learning those enemy threat systems. I still have so, mine. <laughs> so he, uh, he kind of gave me a flashback there. But, but I'd start, Nikki, by answering the question, fighting for intelligence. Uh, 
I tell lieutenants and captains right now in Bolick and the MIC that as an intel officer, of course you're supposed to know the threat. You're supposed to know red. But to provide your commander that situational understanding, situational awareness so that he can have decision dominance, that intel officer also needs to know maneuver, the blue side of the house. Yeah, Roger. Okay. Yeah. So he's got to understand maneuver, and he's got to understand threat. The intel guy's got to know red and blue, and he's trying to turn those gray icons that we can see on the battlefield red. And that leads me to, you know, the triad of the S2, the S3, and the commander. If those three people in any organization at Echelon are not in sync, then the plan could be derailed. Uh, and, you know, I tell commanders all the time now, and, and we just came out of the uh, ops block of ASEPC where there were several division commanders, you know, and, and what I told them was is, hey, look, you know, you've got to have your intel officer in your inner circle. And, and if they're not, you're doing a disservice to your organization. Uh, so, so then I'd kind of pile on to some of Rich's points. And so when you fight for intel, one, you have to know the intel cycle. Uh, two, you have to know the intel assets that are available from tactical to strategic. Uh, you know, and then... How do you get access to, if I'm at the division level, how do I get access to some of those national assets that could potentially confirm or deny and help me turn a gray icon red? You know, whether it's SIGINT, HUMINT, ELINT, EMINT, MTIs, moving target indicators, whether it's OSINT in today's world, we have to use OSINT, uh, you know, heavily, uh, whether it's GEOINT. You know, you've got to understand all the different ints that can help you. And then, of course, as an intel officer, uh, even, you know, at the brigade and above echelon, you've got to know the intelligence community partners, the IC partners, and what those 18 different agencies could particularly bring to you uh, if you were able to tap into them, how to ask RFIs up the chain, to get them in the in the system, but you know, we've been dealing with with coin and counterterrorism operations for two decades, and our peer and near peer adversaries, as Rich mentioned, have been studying us the entire time. They've been making uh, capability developments. They've been improving their armies. Uh, their threat is now more lethal and more sophisticated. Um, and, and so I think our adversaries who have studied us are, in, are better postured to kind of go after our strengths and also our weaknesses. Uh, so you look at what the peer near three pets uh, threats have done here over the past two decades. You know, they've improved their EW, their cyber, their IO, their space capabilities. You know, they've improved their... Um, anti-access, anti-denial, A2AD, their IADs, their long-range precision fires. Uh, we're probably going to have to face that. You know, Chief mentioned a while ago when Russia went into Crimea and uh, 
a little 2014. Well, Russia's also done operations in the Ukraine since then. They've done operations in Syria. You know, we've learned, you know, uh, from their operations. And then we, we look at what the Chinese are doing as well, whether it's in the South China Sea, whether it's the Nine Dash Line. You know, they have made, and they started, you know, several years ago, moving toward the BCT combat uh concept of war fighting just like we were because they were looking at our doctrine and they wanted to be like us um so so i would tell you you know fighting for intelligence is tough sometimes uh and that intel officer of course has got to be skilled knowing blue and red and he's got to know all the available resources that are there that could help them you know, confirm or deny for that commander so that they can make a decision and have decision dominance. Yes, sir. So I think for me, having a look at Chapter 6 of FM 2.0, uh, I, I think about it kind of like Mr. Cree did uh, in two different segments. So the first segment would really be, you know, the, the enemy situation that we're fighting against. And so what does that look like in, in LISCO and MDO? I think uh, General Hale painted a pretty good picture of it. Uh, I think it's a situation where there's anti-access area denial bubbles, and then inside those bubbles uh, were contested in all domains, so contested uh, in space, in cyber, across the electromagnetic spectrum, uh, land, air, maritime. Uh, perhaps there's separatist forces operating on that battlefield. Uh, we're contested with our precision navigation and timing. Perhaps there's some jamming of the GPS, some spoofing, uh, things like that. It's probably a hypervelocity environment where we're challenged from fort uh, all the way to port. So a situation where we traditionally have not uh, been in. And so I, I look at it in terms of the enemy and how we fight through that uh, and, and how we crack those A2AD bubbles uh, and how we start to get after the enemy. And then the other way I look at it is fighting ISR uh, really as a staff and what that strategy looks like. So do we have the right architecture in place? Do we have the right military intelligence systems? Do we have the right equipment? Do we have the correct transport layer to make sure that we're able to pass data uh, up, down, and sideways uh, into outside agencies? Do we have all those things? Uh, because I don't believe there's probably a lack of data uh, I believe the question is, do we have the capability at Echelon to process, exploit, and then disseminate uh, that data? So, so that, that is a question. And then just making sure that as a staff, we're looking at the priority intelligence requirements, not just every intelligence requirement that's out there, but scoping in those PIR. So we're, we're answering a commander's questions to allow them some decision space. Uh, to, to make decisions on the battlefield. Um, so that, that's kind of how I see fighting for intel. While you all were talking, it, it occurred to me, sir, um, you know, the tools we use are a little bit different than we had when we were doing this as a full-time focus, right? In some cases, they're, they're far superior, or at least they seem to be, until you start putting them in the context of some of these threats, right? And so we've kind of had a bias towards aerial collection, for example, and using those kinds of platforms for a long time which is fine in certain contexts. I mean, they certainly give you an advantage and you're not putting people at risk as much. Um, now you found yourself in a situation where you would kind of put many of your eggs in one basket 
and you know we didn't have any chickens hatching any other eggs anywhere i think we've gotten after that after the last few years but uh, i'd be interested in your thoughts on that yeah yeah rich you know that that's a good point but what i would tell you is although we've gotten after it in the last three years to make some of those modernization gains it's going to take time to get there okay so in the meantime do we have air superiority for our aerial ISR assets, whether manned or unmanned? Uh, you know, everybody talks about space these days, and look at the different capabilities that our adversaries have in space. Talk about the comms network, okay? Talk about working through a contested, congested environment. Uh, they're going to be using cyber and EW against us just as we would them, but they're going to impact our collection capabilities. How long do you think it takes to set up a human network against a peer or near-peer threat? You don't do that overnight. So where are you going to find the enemy? How are you going to turn those gray icons red when your capabilities are degraded? And I will tell you that although we're making great progress, you know, and I think we'll talk about modernization a little bit later, but, you know, we've got the largest modernization in the last 40 years, as I mentioned earlier, ongoing right now. But it's going to take a little time to field all that equipment at Echelon, and especially Compo 2 and 3. Uh, and as we work through rearm and how that uh, shakes out with, uh, within the Army, you know, there are going to be some units that are haves and some units that are have-nots, okay? And, and that causes you to look at the training. But it also go, goes back to your point, Rich, on the capability at Echelon that you have to collect that intel. And, and I would say, you know, fighting for intel is going to be much more important and we'll probably see much more challenges uh, as we move forward against a peer or near-peer adversary. And you know that, that operational environment that Nikki spoke about earlier, uh, you know, as we look at our peer and near-peer threats, you know, totally different in Indo-Pacific than it is in the UCOM AOR and the fight that you're going to have there. Uh, so I think it's, uh, it's going to be really challenging, Nikki, and I think fighting for intelligence is going to be much more talked about uh, in the future as we move forward uh, due to that congested uh, environment. So, actually, I have, I have a quick question on this one, because how often do I get a chance to get this much experience in the room? When you're talking about the idea of trying to find a way to get an asymmetric advantage over an enemy that has had a period to study us, and you're right, sir, we do have a gap of, of material solutions right now. While we're waiting to bring those systems up online, what can organizations at the, say, division core level, if we were to look at divisions and cores as being tactical, tactical formations again, what would you advise commanders to start looking at as far as staff processes and practices to help at least bridge that gap a little bit? So, if I may, just based on some of the reflections that we've seen at the different warfighters the, that the General Hale and I have attended, um, I think we do very good uh, both in terms of red and blue intel, in terms of tube and rocket artillery and air-delivered effects, 
in that piece of the, the airland battle, if you will. What I think we still need to work on are having a space effect, having a, an effect in the information domain, having effect uh, in the cyber domain, all within that scheme of maneuver. Uh, I think we have capability out there right now, so I don't think it's that we necessarily lack capability. I think we, we, we need to continue to work to fuse that capability so we have that effect in the scheme of maneuver, again, to allow commanders to uh, execute their mission and have decision space. So, so I think there's capability out there. And, you know, we've, in, in some of those areas, we've done very well in developing cyber being one of them. Uh, I just think we, we need to bring it all together. Uh, and so I think we probably need, I would say, more sets and reps. And I don't know if it's more warfighter exercises or what that training looks like, but we need more sets and reps in real time to be able to bring all the, those domains together to have an effect. Sir. Yeah, so, so I would kind of look at it from a different perspective, uh, piling on to what Chief just said. You know, and to me it goes back to training, okay? So get your intel soldiers, you know, out of their office, out from behind a non-intel computer and get them operating their systems. Uh, you know, I remember when I was a Tilki Turkey Trailblazer platoon leader um, back in the day, and you, you went out and you actually did drills and you timed yourself on how long it took you to set up your equipment and get it operational and start collecting. Um, we've got to be able to do that in a contested environment. Uh, we've got to have the sets and reps to do that. Um, as I look at, um, you know, Chief mentioned the staff process. Um, you know, you've got to know the staff process inside and out where you can do it in your sleep. Uh, you know, you can't stall and think about something for an extended period of time because you may lose an opportunity uh, if your commander didn't make a decision to, to do something. Um, and as I look at it, as we get towards, you know, looking at the biggest challenges we're going to have, to me it goes back to the fundamentals. You've got to know how to do collection management. You've got to know how to manage your ISR, uh, intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance. You know, you've got to know how to conduct the targeting cycle to in to have your long-range shooters be able to engage to have any of your your assets engaged you've got to be able to exercise that using all the ints you know chief mentioned cyberspace etc i use the term you've got to be able to synchronize from mud to space in today's environment because we're looking across five domains um you know chief and i were talking as we prep for this session you know and, and chief mentioned airland battle Two domains is what we were focused on then. Well, now we're in five domains, and we've got to be able to synchronize it across all the domains uh, as we move forward. Uh, so so I, I go back to, you know, using the chief's words on sets and reps, uh, and you got to get after it, and uh, you've got to have your intel soldiers doing intel, not doing something else. And sometimes, you know, having been to Force Com G2, it was a lot of, painting rocks and cutting grass and motor pool and not necessarily own your system. I can't tell you how many times I have visited NTC or JRTC, JMRC as a senior intel officer and 
D6A is sitting in a box, not even connected. You know, we got to get away from that. We cannot have that and cannot, you know, allow that to happen in today's Army. So you talk about those sets and reps, both of you, and, and that, that I think that's applicable to all the battle uh, or all the uh, warfighting functions. But, you know, the emerging FM30, we're bringing back tenets and uh, imperatives. Um, one of the tenets is agility. And agility is informed by those sets and reps that make you familiar enough to be able to execute processes in, as battle drills in much of the same way a platoon would execute their battle drills like your turkey uh, platoon examples. Or, and I think sometimes that does get lost on folks that we're not just talking about infantry platoons and scout platoons that have drills. Everybody's got to have drills. And you've got to measure them, right, because there's no other way to judge whether you're getting better. And that gets to this uh, multi-domain imperative that you have to operate as if uh, or under the assumption that your friendly forces are always in contact. And certainly observation from space when contact in the EMS are examples where you can pretty much assume that that's true, whether you're in CONUS or anywhere else. And so not only should that drive you towards operating in a certain way, but it also should kind of motivate you, right, because we can be assessed. Uh, pretty simply, if particularly being watched. So we may assess ourselves a little more generously than, than the threat would. And so that's important, too. So I, I just think it's interesting how that all comes together. Yeah, Rich, you're exactly right. You know, General Flynn at USERPAC will tell you he's in competition every day. And so will General Cavoli over at USERAF. Uh, competition every day. And they're watching everything that we're doing. Uh, and, and in some some ways, you know, I asked myself, are we doing the same? You know, because we're looking in multiple locations, of course, but our peer and near-peer adversaries are looking at the U.S., where we're looking at multiple nations, uh, nation-states, et cetera, as we move forward. So, again, again, the theme from all of this is, is the more things change, the more they kind of remain the same almost for the all these decades, I'm not going to admit how many decades I've been doing this, but it's it's kind of refreshing almost to hear that. At, still at the same time, I think it's a good chance for us to talk about the capabilities that are being developed right now under what we call Waypoint 2028, but really I think most folks, especially if they're younger listeners that aren't familiar with that term, this is kind of our modernization effort and this transition point that we're attempting to manage as an Army. And doctrine alone is awesome. I love it. It's my thing, but these new technologies and systems that we're bringing up online and how we're going to employ them in operations has still got a lot of folks wondering what the future and what the modernization effort's going to look like. During previous podcasts, we've discussed this a lot, especially as it applies to LISCO, but, but here's a chance for us to really dial in on what the MI community is doing and how it's going to apply to operations in the future. Gentlemen, I, I want to ask you, what do you think? Uh, what do you think of the process of building intelligence capabilities? And, sir, how are your priorities and objectives working towards that effort as well? Yeah. So, uh, Nikki, you know, when I went out to uh, Yuseko and Fort Huachuca, you know, I kind of looked at what General Potter had been doing over the previous 15 months, and of course, uh, you know. In, in about halfway through her, her tenure there, you know, COVID hit. 
and kind of shut things down a little bit. So in, in some respects, I was given a fresh look at uh, what was going on at the Intel Center uh, in Fort Huachuca, and I actually came up with my uh, three objectives. General Rainey is a big objective guy. He's not a line of effort person. Uh, so my three objectives and my one priority. And of course, you could probably guess that my one priority is people. Uh, with the Chief of Staff of the Army's uh, people priority that came out uh, during AUSA uh, in 2019. Uh, so we've got to continue to uh, invest in our people. Uh, you know, the Intel Corps in particular uh, has a low ratio of minorities in the Intel Corps, and I'm specifically focused on that as the CG of the Intel Center. Uh, but we've got to manage our talent. Uh, as I look at modernizing the Army, uh, you know, that re revolves around what are we going to do with not only artificial intelligence, machine learning, uh, to, to make sure that we kind of speed up all this intel that's falling on the floor, okay? And any crisis or conflict, there's, there's intel collection that falls on the floor. Uh, so what are we going to do to ensure that artificial intelligence, machine learning is integrated into the Intel processes. And then in today's world, how are we going to uh, implement uh, open source intelligence and publicly available information? Because we can enrich our intelligence assessments through OSINT and PAI. Uh, as I looked at my three objectives, you know, the one that gets towards the modernization is, is drive change. Uh, but, and that's objective number two. Objective number one is build leaders. We've got to have great leaders in the Intel Corps that take us into the next century. Uh, you know, you look at, uh, you know, being part of TRADOC, I look at General Funk's talent-based branching. You know, a focal point for our MI officers is a more diverse representation of the demographics. Uh, so we've got to get back to recruiting the best and the brightest uh, in our branch and not only committed to recruiting them, but retaining them. Uh, as I look at driving change, okay, so we're undergoing the largest modernization effort in 40 years. And from an organizational perspective, you know, we now have the Intelligence Electronic Warfare Battalions at the divisions and the corps. We're also exploring, and I don't want anybody to get excited here, exploring, you know, potentially uh, moving the MICOs, the MI companies, up to the IEW battalion. That'll get, get after some of the training readiness, some of the maintenance across the division. It'll also put a senior... Uh, command select 05 in charge of that intel warfighting function at the division level. So we're, we're looking at that. You know, we've enhanced the uh, Military Intelligence Brigade Theater, the MIB-T formation in INSCOM. Uh, this past fiscal year, they were increased uh, by 77 personnel uh, as we continue to build that out. We have stood up the multi-domain task force. Uh, that first one is up at uh, JBLM with Jim Eisenhower. We're getting ready to stand up the ne next one this year for, for Europe and, and, and USARAF. Um, you know, 
that uh, MDTF uh, organization is one of the Army's top priorities. I think we're looking at building five. Eventually, we'll get to five. Uh, and then you look at the material. You know, as you talk about, uh, really, our signature capability is going to be what we call Titan, the Tactical Intelligence Targeting Access Node. And that's going to bring together cyber, EW, SIGINT, and space in one vehicle. Uh, and, and so the chief has really jumped on uh, the Titan. That's our signature model for uh, modernization. Uh, we also have multi-domain sensing system that gets after that capability gap one, deep sensing. Uh, we've got the T-List series. So we have T-List, terrestrial layer system, BCT, for the BCTs. And then we have T-List EAB for echelon above brigades. Thanks, uh, the cores, the MDTFs uh, for T-List EAB and the divisions, of course. And, and so I think that aligns well with the uh, rearm campaign. But at the same time, we're doing intelligence rearm. How are we in line with rearm from an Army perspective for intel systems and capabilities? Because we've got to be in sync as we move forward. Um, so this modernization is going to allow commanders to see further, they're going to hopefully be able to understand sooner and, and then have that situational understanding that they can share wider uh, across the battlefield. Uh, and, and then, for me, my third objective, just to complete that out, is my inform objective. And, and I, it really hit me the first trip I made from Fort Huachuca after taking over in August of uh, 2020. And it was the fact that we have... Uh, senior intel leaders, and I say a intel leader in the intel corps is lieutenant colonel CSL and above. We have senior intel leaders that don't even know what we're doing in our intelligence corps with regards to training or modernization. So how can they mentor their junior officers and soldiers if they don't have a clue what we're doing in our intel corps? So I've been really beating my head on the uh, table to get from what I call the boardroom to the basement to ensure that all the intel soldiers at Echelon understand what's going on in the intel warfighting function. And, and, and that's been a little bit diff difficult for me, having been in the soft community for five years before coming to Fort Huachuca not having any of the social media accounts. You know, now I have Facebook and Twitter and the gram. And, you know, that, that was different for me because I didn't even use Nipper email address. You know, I didn't really go to my Nipper email. Um, so I would say from, you know, that perspective, you know, build leaders, drive change, inform, keeping people first. We've got a lot going on in the Intel Corps. Uh, and, and, you know, events like this allow us to, allow me to get on my inform objective to, to let everybody know what's going on. I'll, I'll pause there and pass it over to Chief. You know, I told you before we started, when I get going, I kind of get going, you know, getting my message out. Well, Chief. sir, that was a great rundown. Honestly, I don't think there's a whole lot for me to say in terms of uh, material modernization, but I did want to hit a couple things. 
Uh, and one of them goes back to Mr. Creed's point about us evaluating ourselves. Uh, and so one of the things that we've developed over the last several years is a military intelligence training strategy. We call it MITS. Uh, and that's, that's a tiered system, so it goes from individual certification to crew certification to platform certification, and then finally to the warfighting function certification, so four different levels. Uh, and it puts some rigor into that training that we're doing. Uh, and so that's kind of part of our modernization effort as well, and we continue to mature that process uh, moving forward. Uh, you, you could think of it as a gunnery, if you will, so table four, table eight. Uh, you know, we, we talk about having crews associated uh, with our different platforms. So, so that's one of the ways that we're getting after that. And then to drive that, uh, we have our Intelligence and Electronic Warfare Troop Proficiency Trainer, or IEWTPT, and that, that provides an ability to uh, simulate and also stimulate our, our intelligence systems. And so we continue to work on that. Another critical capability that we're rolling out is Capability Drop 2, which will be a replacement for our uh, IFS servers, our fusion servers, as well as our multifunction workstations. Uh, we should know, so have some information with regard to uh, the vendor for that in the, in the next few days coming up. So look forward to that. But that really is you know, still in the test, fix, test process uh, as we go forward. Um, and so I thought that was good. I would like to uh, pitch it back to you, sir, if you want to talk about the multi-domain range. I think that's probably pretty important to talk about as well. Yeah, yeah, great, Chief. And, uh, you know, I actually uh, just actually laid out the multi-domain operations range uh, that we're building at Fort Huachuca to uh, both General Martin and General Potter in the last week. And, and so, you know, Fort Huachuca has been the testing site uh, in the electromagnetic spectrum for decades. And the Electronic Proving Ground, EPG, uh, does underneath ATEC, the Army Testing Evaluation Command, uh, does uh, testing on all of our uh, electromagnetic systems. Uh, TLIS BCT is in the, in the range complex right now doing testing uh, with two different vendors before we do a down select. Uh, we also have our uh, IEW test directorate at Fort Huachuca that does a lot of testing. We have our uh, JITIC, the Joint Interoperability uh, Test Command at Fort Huachuca, which is a joint organization commanded by a Navy uh, captain. And then we have uh, our ISEC, Information Security uh, Command as well, that does a lot of testing. Uh, for the Army, for the different CFTs, and we use what we call right now the Buffalo Soldier Electronic Test and Training Range. So what's so significant about Fort Huachuca? Well, we're in southern Arizona. You really got to want to come to Fort Huachuca to come to Fort Huachuca because if you leave from Fort, Fort Leavenworth, you know, uh, where you're located at, Nikki, it takes you about all day to get there. Okay, um, we're in southern uh, Arizona, like I said, about 15 miles uh, by the way the crow flies to Mexico. Uh, and we're actually in a bowl surrounded by mountains. We have about 1,000 square miles of restricted airspace over Fort Huachuca. Uh, so when I go out into our training range, 
and I fire off electrons, whether it be EW, cyber, etc., SIGINT, guess what? Those electrons aren't going to interfere with any air corridor that services a major airport. They're not going to uh, interfere with any major metropolitan area. Uh, Sierra Vista is uh, you know, a small town uh, within Cochise County. Uh, I think the population is somewhere around 20,000 or so, 25,000 outside of the gate. Okay, so it's not a large area. Tucson's the closest. Um, so what we're doing at, at the Buffalo Soldier Electronic Test and Training Range is really making that an MDO-capable range uh, where, you know, I tell folks to close their eyes, imagine a unit flying in on their C-17. We have a 12,003-foot runway. used to be the alternate landing location for the space shuttle program. Imagine your MI troopers or your EW or cyber troopers flying in, landing on our, on our runway, going out into East Range with their equipment, and training at the squad, platoon, company level, right out there in East Range, shooting electrons all over the terrain without interfering with anybody. You know, we can put threat emitters out in the range complex that we're developing with Arizona State University and the University of Arizona that are about the size of the laptop in front of you that will emulate SA-16, 18, S-400, you know, think about in, in this coming year we're going to actually be in Project Convergence 21 where we're going to have a threat system uh, emulated from Fort Huachuca. Uh, that's going to be in the uh, campaign of learning there. Uh, but just think about where you can come and actually test, use your equipment, not have to worry about any regulations that are being violated, especially um, within the electromagnetic spectrum. And, uh, you know, we were approved at the Palm planning task by the chief last year, and we're moving out in coordination with Chuck Lombardo and the CAC-T team. Uh, we're already a major uh, uh, range training complex already, uh, so it's a great time to be at Fort Huachuca, especially as we move toward Waypoint 2028 and Aimpoint 2035 in multi-domain operations. It's funny you should mention that, sir. I remember as a very young pilot flying against the aircraft survivability equipment trainer, and in order to get again, it basically was meant to replicate an IADS threat, and that was multiple Humvee-based systems and trailers, to think that it would go down to a laptop increases opportunity and I think really increases capacity for us to continue training. So, so Nikki, the way we, I'm glad you brought that up. So the way we're looking at it is range in a box. So think of a Connex that's got dozens of these laptops in it that you can pull out and set up in your training area, whether it's at a core location, JBLM, we, we've done some testing up at JBLM with the multi-domain task force, or at Fort Hood or at Fort Bragg, you know, put out at the CTCs. Think about fast movers that are supporting a CTC rotation, and they get some training because it's CTC, NTCs connected with Fort Huachuca, with White Sands, et cetera, uh, Yuma, and think about the training that you know could be provided to them. Right now, we've got uh, Userpack out doing some testing at Fort Huachuca. 
We've got Naval Special Warfare out doing some testing at Fort Huachuca, as well as some of our RSOF, our Army SOF folks from uh, the 160th as well. So I'm going to bring us all back to to kind of where we first started. You guys made a mention of the deck of cards that a lot of us got, which was the you know identify your threat, and it was all Soviet-based equipment, and that was part of our professional development. So with all this experience in the room, what do we think is probably the best way to go with continuing professional development for for our field grades, especially the guys who just started? over at Lewis and Clark Center with the new, the new class of, of CGSOC students. How should they be thinking about their professional development as it applies to intel and operations? Well, I'll throw out something from the maneuver guy perspective, right? Because there's three things that you hear screamed in a talk, at least the battalion and brigade level. It's, where's the two, uh, where's the SIGO, and where's the camo, right? And so, uh, at the lower tactical echelons during our experiments with modularity, you had special troops battalions, right? Uh, and I, this is what I commanded in Korea, was a special troops battalion. So I had a signal company, uh, an MI company, a chemical company. So it was kind of like karma for being mean uh, back when I was a captain and a major. And so one of the things that was, uh, I found that was very important to do is the last thing you want to be on a on a large-scale combat battlefield is look special because when you look special you get shot first right and so one of the training things that we did and I did within that battalion was to ensure that my and my soldiers that man profit and were humaners and did these other things um, could integrate very cleanly into the maneuver formations that they supported and did not stick out. In other words, they looked like infantrymen, they acted like infantrymen when they weren't behind or riding on the platform, that they could move uh, their vehicles in a tactical manner. Uh, and, and so they were special, but they, they blended right in with the team uh, because that joint and combined arms approach to operations that underpins all of our doctrine and the way that the U.S. Army wants to fight uh, is heavily dependent on to be able to integrate those capabilities at echelon. And people like to use the word seamless. There's no such thing as seamless unless you uh, you get those reps and sets that the chief brought up earlier. And so I would throw that in there. The other piece is, and, and I think it's incumbent upon the maneuver community to do this, but you know, if you're always yelling, particularly at the battalion level, you've got a great disparity in rank, right? So you have majors on the brigade staff can talk to the colonel or the lieutenant colonel, the battalion commanders. There's a closer degree, but when you're perhaps a first lieutenant or a captain and you've got a battalion commander, you know, that's a pretty um, intimidating situation to find yourself in, right? I mean, you're speaking truth to power all the time. Every time you execute the military decision-making process and you're back briefing your IPB uh, bits there, that's an opportunity to learn. And so I think we could do a better job there um, within all of the communities of one, coaching our twos, our MI officers about what we want, right? Just don't say, go out there and do great things. You need to coach and develop them from the maneuver perspective. Um, and then we could do a better job of educating uh, those officers about what the expectations are because they're gonna be a little bit different at every echelon. That's just my observations over time. Yeah, Rich, I'll, I'll jump right on there. And, uh, you know, you, you talked about what a soldier looks like. 
okay? So, you know, the first thing I would say is that every intel soldier needs to be able to shoot, move, communicate, and medicate. And that's the fundamental of being a soldier. Um, what I tell lieutenants and captains at Bullock and, and the Mick is that don't go in to your boss, at, that lieutenant colonel you were just talking about, trying to impress them with this gee whiz intel geek talk. Right. You know, talk like a maneuver commander. Right. You have to talk like them. You know, you may have, you know, found out your information from space through the Titan, etc. But tell the commander, here's where the enemy is. Here's what he wants to do to you. Here's how he's going to kill you. And this is the most dangerous course of action. Right. You know, and, and a lot of times, um, you know, lieutenants and captains in particular, they, they in today's generation of lieutenants and captains, you know, they want the answer. What is the answer that solves the problem? Well, guess what? In our, you know, jobs, in our world, there are a lot of different variables that have an impact on the answer. And they want the cookie-cutter solution. Well, the threat gets a vote. And I tell, you know, intel officers all the time, the threat gets a vote. Um, so it's not a cookie-cutter solution. You know, Nikki, back to you with the, with the students in CGSC right here at, uh, at Fort Leavenworth. You know, I go back to growing up and, you know, there being some requirement to self-study, okay? So, so I've got to do some self-study on my own. Uh, you know, I would encourage all intel professionals, but all Army officers and soldiers uh, to be learning something new every day. Uh, you know, read something that's not the intel for an intel officer or your email. Read something different because that's where you get different ideas from, good ideas. Uh, but to always be self-studying. Uh, and, you know, I, I just read Admiral McRaven's uh, book. Uh, I think it was The Honor Code, Okay. And he laid out 10 different examples of honor. And it was just a fascinating story. Each one, you know, talked about loyalty and selfless service and courage and things like that. But it was a story that went with each one. Uh, so always be reading something. Uh, but that self-study also includes doctrine. You know, we mentioned earlier that the new draft 3.0 is out. So guess what's in my bag uh, that I'm taking along on road trips as I'm doing most of the month it's it's something to read on the airplane right and, and you know Rich didn't create a, a podcast of 3.0 being read to me so I'm having to read it get uh, right on that so yeah so so I'm reading that draft because you know what what did General Rainey just asked on Monday you know have you read 3.0 yet well yes you know sir I just got my copy last week and I'm getting to it and you know going through it but self-study uh, and, and then always, uh, you know, the fundamentals are the fundamentals. They, they haven't changed. These intel cycle, IPB, military decision-making process, that's the fundamentals. You know, you've got to know that cold. Um, but, but then, you know, you also can learn from each other. 
learn in your in your study groups, learn in your in your small groups, uh, because everybody's got different experiences. Um, some people may not have served in a different echelon of the uh, of the intel warfighting function or different echelon uh, in the army, whether it be BCT division corps, etc. Um, you know, there's a difference between what happens in intelligence and security command vice what happens in forcecom. All right, so learn from each other, learn from your peers. Um, but every intel officer, every intel soldier has got to be a soldier first. Uh, that shoot, move, communicate, medicate. Uh, we run our lieutenants through the night combat course. And, and I will tell you, the first time I went uh, out to observe that, and it's a night obstacle course, and but you have pyro and blanks going off, and it's you know pitch dark, and you're crawling underneath concertina wire. And the first time I looked at a bolic course of 54 lieutenants uh, in pitch black dark, they were looking back at me, and you know it looked like a bunch of stunned mullets because they didn't know what they had just been through. Um, but you know, learn from each other. And, and build that confidence as you be an intel professional. I, I do have a couple thoughts on that. Uh, from a schoolhouse perspective, I mentioned that I was a platform instructor. I was also a course manager. Uh, out at Fort Huachuca, we run multiple uh, IET, or IMT rather, and PME uh, courses. So we worked very hard to scaffold those courses from the 10 level, uh, you know, all the way through our warrant officers to make sure that it's a building block and we're not teaching redundancy out there at the schoolhouse, uh, along with our lieutenants and captains as well. And I would even go far as far as to say the, the pre-command course that we run out there, we try to make sure all of that is scaffolded. Uh, we do that through the CTSSB process, critical uh, site selection, um, CT, Site Selection Task Board, yeah, that's it. Um, and so we go through that very deliberate process to make sure that uh, what we're teaching out there meets the needs of the Army. So to meet the needs of the Army, how do we get after that? Well, we are in constant communication with our Intelligence and Security Command, constant communication with our Forcecom G2s, uh, with our Forcecom units with the Forcecom operators, with USASOC, making sure that as we train and put either soldiers out into the force or back into the force, that they have the latest on what the threat is, that they have the latest on multi-domain intelligence, that they have the latest in intelligence architecture. So we deliberately go through and making sure we're, we're getting after some of these things. And then, you know, taking it a step further, making sure that we're getting after things like uh, OSINT PAI, making sure that we're getting after artificial intelligence, uh, machine learning, uh, all, all these different things, making sure that we're moving forward to the future. Um, I, I would tell you on the warrant officer side of the house, we're working very closely with CW5 Kilgore here at CAC. Uh, we're tightly nested in with the, the warrant officer PME modernization that, that he's kind of leading the charge on. Um, we, we've looked at that very closely. Uh, we've got our, our briefs prepped and we're ready to go uh, whenever it is that we brief. Uh, I would tell you that as an MI Corps, Going back to 2016, for our warrant officers, we've worked very hard uh, and we've husbanded some resources and got resources internally uh, to make sure that we can 
again, put out that best product uh, out on the street. So we've created a phase three for our warrant, warrant officer level or warrant officer intermediate level education as well as our warrant officer senior service education. Uh, we have those in place right now. Uh, and all the feedback that we get on the QAO surveys is we are definitely heading in the right direction with that. So always room to improve the foxhole, uh, but, but at least for our warrants, I think we're in a pretty good spot. That's awesome. So I think we're gonna, we're gonna wrap it up, but I wanna ask each of you one kind of last question about the future of all of this against the backdrop of MDO. And especially, I just came from Defender Pacific 21 where I got the chance to, to watch First Corps working with USERPAC and also working through the, the wickets of the MDTF. So how do we see emerging intelligence capabilities and where do we think intelligence is going for the Army in the future? Start off with you, sir. Yeah, so um, Nikki, that's a, a great final question here. And I think, you know, as we look at competition, crisis, and conflict, as we backdrop multi-domain operations to five domains and what we're doing in our modernization posture, you know, as we've talked about throughout this uh, podcast here, you know, one, the fundamentals are, are still the fundamentals. Uh, training is still training, and you got to do the sets and reps that uh, the chief talked about first. Um, intelligence, I would say, and I grew up, Intel drives ops. So I'm going to answer your question here at the end, but Intel drives ops. Uh, if you don't know where the enemy is, a maneuver commander, you're not going to be able to kill him, and you're not going to be able to accomplish your mission. So Intel drives ops, uh, and within a theater, uh, you know, we look at intelligence setting that theater as a common start point. So, you know, we look at exactly uh, what's going on uh, in each particular theater, and we have organizations within the Intel community that do that every day. You know, I got up this morning and I saw that both North Korea and South Korea had launched missiles you know uh, we look at that every day I'm sure we had some warning on that you know intelligence is continuous in competition we never you know as General McChrystal said uh, as commander of JSOC it's the unblinking eye intelligence is the unblinking eye um, you know in competition uh, intelligence is continuous it goes right into crisis right into conflict the importance of our allies and partners can't be understated. You know, they have, we have intelligence uh, sharing agreements with all of our allies and partners. In some respects, they have additional capabilities that potentially we don't have because maybe they're not uh, regulated uh, by law like we are in some cases. Um, as we look to modernize our uh, equipment from the Intel Corps, the largest modernization in the last 40 years, really modernizing from mud to space, as I talked about earlier. Uh, but look at the new capabilities we're bringing online, whether it's the multi-domain task force with an Intel capability, whether it's a theater fire cell with an Intel capability, whether it's an information advantage activity. Everybody wants Intel. Uh, everybody wants more Intel and, and you know for me we're in a growth industry for everybody wanting Intel but we know our top line of soldiers isn't going to increase 
and, and could potentially decrease. So we've got to make sure we've got the right intel professional at the right location doing the right job. You know, as we continue to update our doctrine, as 3.0 draft is out, we'll update 2.0 very quickly uh, and, and make sure that we are focused on multi-domain operations. But, you know, as I mentioned earlier, um, two different theaters, Indo-Pacific and UCOM, uh, you're, you're talking about basically in the UCOM AOR, a, a peer-on-peer land, uh, land fight. Uh, when you look at the Indo-Pacific, you know, that's more island hopping. You know, I don't think we're going to be able to mass capabilities uh, like we would like we would do in the UCOM uh, AOR. And, and then the, I think the final thought I would have is, you know, intel professionals have to be able to synchronize that tat, tactical to national collection uh, of, of all the ints uh, and all use all the IC partners, you know, as the Resolute Support J2 in Afghanistan from from May of uh, 18 to September of 19. Uh, that's what I had to do every day. Uh, and, and granted, you know, I was looking at one JOA there in Afghanistan with, with multiple countries of interest surrounding it, but I was having to synchronize from tactical to national what was going on and how those impacts were happening on the ground in Afghanistan. So, so I think it's a great time to be an intel professional. Uh, we're hiring. Uh, and, and we, uh, we definitely want the best and brightest in the Intel Corps. Well, thanks again. <clears throat> Excuse me. Thank you again for the opportunity to be here. I thought it's been a, a great session so far. Um, I guess I would frame your question in terms of the couple of papers that the Chief of Staff of the Army put out back in March. So if, if you look at what our near-peer competitors continue to do, uh, their continue operations inside the gray zone, uh, they continue to weaponize instruments of national power. Um, they continue to blur the line between conflict and peace. And so I guess in the short term, I think we need to look at that in terms of competition. I think in the longer term, certainly we get to LISCO and multi-domain operations. <clears throat> uh, as we look at the Pacific, I think uh, there's a lot of geography there. It's uh, you know, a lot of, lot of complex uh, battlefield geometry as well and I think the capabilities that we're building I think they need to be redundant I think they need to be nimble I think that they need to be able to sense deep I think we're on the right track with the multi-domain task force uh, with the multi-domain exploitation battalion formerly I2Qs theater fires command things like that I think we're on the right track with those but I think we have to get more we have to get faster we have to get more lethal uh, as Intel, we have to enable the kill web, uh, making sure we have the, the right shooter looking at the right target at the right time. Um, I think we need to focus on information advantage. And I think we need to, as I talked about earlier, make sure that as we train, we're looking at coordinating, coordinating all of those effects at the same point inside the scheme maneuver. Um, so, so that's what I have. Again, uh, thanks for the opportunity. Chief almost left me with nothing to say. You ticked, ticked off almost every box on the uh, the MDO and, and FM30 uh, checklist there. Hey, I think uh, just two broad points. Um, 
one, Intel helps us see ourselves, uh, see the threat, and then understand the operational environment. And that's fundamental to our approach uh, in, in, to any operational environment, but specifically the one in the near and long term. And 3.0 addresses that specifically, and, and the two series publications though, do as well. And what we're, we're looking from a doctoral standpoint is to make sure we're consistent across the three series pubs where it's appropriate, uh, depending on the, the subject matter, to, to make sure we kind of have this uniform approach and this common understanding. The other thing is everyone always asks, well, I need to do some multi-domain stuff. When's my multi-domain stuff going to the doctrine? You know, when I, it's like more cowbell in the old Saturday Night Live skit. Um, and it kind of drives you nuts because it, dri it makes you realize people don't really understand the, the idea. Um, the one exception would be the Intel warfighting function. A multidisciplinary approach to uh, intelligence is inherently a multi-domain approach to intelligence. And so I would offer that uh, of all the warfighting functions, we may have some gaps in capabilities or training or so forth, but it's always been a multi-domain uh, warfighting function. The other is this idea, and it, it applies to everybody, um, and I think there's probably some unique aspects to, to intelligence, but you know this whole idea that culture eats strategy or planning for breakfast. Um, and so there's some cultural things we have to get after, and I think it's as much an intel thing as it is a commander and staff thing across all the war fighting functions. It's this idea that commanders need to drive the intelligence process, and they need to be intellectually curious enough about the capabilities um, that are available to ask the right questions or to ask any questions at all and then drive what's available instead of waiting to be told and, and expect the intelligence staff or an intelligence unit to kind of you know, figure it out on their own. Uh, and you can't just do it once. I think it's got to be iterative, like we talked about in ASEP Caesar. Um, so that's, that's like, uh, kind of like uh, where an old tanker would come from on this. Sir, I'm going to leave the last parting shots to you. Anything you got for the community out there? Wow, Nikki, uh, this has been a, a great session. I really appreciate you and uh, Rich Creed uh, helping uh, Chief Anderson and I talk about the intelligence warfighting function. Uh, it's exciting to be the uh, CG of the Intel Center. Uh, when I get to see privates, the colonels every day, learning their craft, uh, it's exciting to be involved in all of the uh, training uh, that we're doing and updating training. You know, I, I mentioned training uh, hadn't been, some of the training hadn't been changed in two decades, and we've got several pilots that are ongoing right now that changes the way we train uh, Intel soldiers. And, and then the, the modernization, and, and you know, I, I was able to crawl over and under and on top of the T-list BCT about uh, six weeks ago out at Fort Huachuca before it went out in the range. But seeing some of the capability that's going to come online, that's going to get after that multi-domain operations, uh, it's just impressive. And, and making sure our intel soldiers are ready to perform, of course, is my job, and it's exciting every day. Uh, but I really appreciate the opportunity to, uh, to inform. Objective number three for me, inform uh, everyone about what's going on in the intel warfighting function. If I've got to fight through a transition in the Army, it's Good to know that I'm fighting along with some awesome people from the Intel branch. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you, gentlemen, for coming out today. Thanks, Nikki. Thanks, Thank you. Nikki. If I did have one alibi, it would be Critical Task Site Selection Board, which I could not get out of my mouth earlier. <laughs> <laughs>
we'd also like to thank our listeners for joining us today, and I'd like to thank Captain Wyatt Harper, who has been our sound recorder and also our producer for this episode. If you enjoyed today's episode, you should hit the subscribe button at either Apple or Google Podcasts, and you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter, U.S. Army Doctrine, for updates on our new episodes, as well as Doctrine Digest video shorts, audiobooks, and most importantly, new Doctrine. You can also follow the Intelligence Center of Excellence and Major General Hale. They're at U.S. Army. ICO and US Army ICO underscore CG for updates to the Intel community. And finally, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the official position of the United States Army, US Army Training and Doctrine Command, or the Combined Arms Center. I'm Lieutenant Colonel Nikki Dean, and this has been Breaking Doctrine. <laughs>